Hello and welcome to the Methades Bible Study Podcast. Methades is the weekly Sunday school class of Ian Pittman. As a teaching ministry of Kokomo Baptist Church, Methades encounters and explores Bible doctrine, theology, and apologetics as a Christian community learning the doctrines of Scripture and the lifestyle they require. Thanks for listening. So we started last week um, with another handout. I've probably got some extra. I think they're in my car, but if anybody didn't get one last week and wants one, I have some. And we were talking about this. So we've, let's back this up just a little bit more. We've been talking about God's providence. And in this discussion of providence, we've been talking about uh, God's sovereignty. And to get a little more uh, deeply into this, predestination and election. And Miss Dot had asked about uh, the Greek behind the word predestination. And so we went through a little bit of that and we remember that the Greek word there, pro orizo, only occurs six times in the New Testament. Uh, this word eklegos is what is used more often, uh, but it carries a bunch of different meanings. So we're going to look at how Paul particularly uh, brings these two ideas together. And so last week when we were thinking about uh, predestination and Paul's perspective on predestination, we talked about the influence of Greek philosophy on him and his uh, education and in, in the culture that he found himself sitting in. So this morning we're turning to the, move this, we'll try that, okay. Um, we're moving to what is probably the preeminent text for understanding Paul on this issue, Romans 9 through 11. And if you look on this little handout, down at the bottom there's a short outline of these three chapters. Um, chapter 9, verses 1 to 26, salvation is under God's sovereign grace. Verses 27 to chapter 10, verse 21, salvation is Israel's responsibility. Uh, chapter 11, verses 1 to 24, God uses Israel's resistance to save the Gentiles. And then chapter 11, verse 25 to 36, God will eventually save all of Israel. Uh, now, that's a pretty big gloss on that because we have to understand uh, several things. Mainly, what is it that Paul means by Israel? Who is Israel? How does he envision Israel and so forth? Uh, so, with that in mind, before we get right into uh, the text here, let's think a little bit about Paul's theology uh, primarily in Romans, but if you're reading any of Paul's letters, you're going to see these same three uh, aspects come up particularly. And the first of these is Paul's monotheism. Um, then we'll talk about election and then eschatology or the end times as Paul sees them. This is not something we think about with Paul a whole lot, but it is there. Um, so beginning then with, or thinking about Romans 9 through 11, the first thing that we need to remember is nearly 40% of these three chapters 
are taken up with Old Testament quotations. Um, so we think about Paul and we think about Paul as a Jew. We also need to think about Paul as a Pharisee and a rabbi who would have been intimately familiar with the law and with the Old Testament. And when he's making this, essentially, Romans is, is more of a theological essay than it is uh, anything else. Martin Luther thought that all Christians should memorize the entire book of Romans uh, word for word because it is so filled with, with doctrine. But when we think about all the doctrine that is included in Romans, we have to remember that it's all got its basis in the Old Testament for Paul. Uh, so anytime we encounter somebody who says that we don't need the Old Testament, um, I raise you the book of Romans. Um, it's full of it. And so 40% of the text is taken up with these Old Testament quotations. So what Paul is doing in these chapters is he's trying to explain the logic of God's dealings with Israel. Because you'll remember from the Old Testament we have all of these covenants that have to do with Israel, uh, not least of all the Abrahamic covenant. And then it seems that with the entry of Christ into the equation, then the, the nation of Israel is set to the side. So Paul is trying to explain the logic of this, and what he does in the beginning is he offers a reading of Israel's history and gives us these quotations from the Jewish scriptures. All right, so monotheism. We, of course, know that this means the worship of one God. If we want the biblical example of this, we've looked at it before, but if you turn back to Deuteronomy chapter 6, and look there beginning in verse 4, uh, this is uh, that Shema, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might, and these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. So here, O Israel, in verse 4, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Now, thinking about Paul, although we're looking at Romans 9 through 11, of course the rest of Romans is important, Romans chapter 3, verses 29 to 30, just think about these in comparison with one another. Or is God the God of Jews only? Is he not the God of Gentiles also? Yes, of Gentiles also, since God is one. Who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through faith? Do we then overthrow the law by this faith? By no means, on the contrary, we uphold the law. Uh, so he's speaking there not only of the one God, but also the idea of the law that has been passed down. That love that is spoken of there in the Shema is that same law which Paul is arguing that we uphold. How do we uphold that? By the worship of the one God. But for Paul, how do you uphold the one God when you have Jesus on the scene now and presumably some early ideas of the Holy Spirit? Now these are questions that are beginning to come in. Uh, one more passage, Romans chapter 8, verse 28, in this same context. If I can get my pages to turn, that'd be good. There we go. Uh, Romans 8, 28, and we, know for the, and we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. So we have an affirmation of monotheism in Paul's reference to God as the creator 
and judge of the world because Jewish uh, monotheism is best expressed in the actions of God in history. And I have a whole bunch of references there if anybody uh, wants to follow through with that. But thinking about Jesus, how does Jesus fit into this monotheistic equation? For us now, sitting on this side of church history, it's a lot easier for us to accept Jesus, fully God, fully man, coming in, not doing away with this idea of one God, uh, but representing God in the flesh, God come to save us. But when you're thinking about Paul operating in this uh, Jewish world, the idea of God coming and taking flesh in order to be sacrificed is borderline blasphemous. Uh, the Jewish understanding was that Yahweh would return as king and rescue Israel from exile. So when Jesus comes, of course we've uh, talked about this during the great, our great exile when we were looking at Mark um, online. If any of you followed that, we talked about this there, that the Jewish expectation of Jesus and what they got from Jesus were so radically different that they found it very difficult to believe in him as the Messiah. Similarly, we have, I'm going to erase these two, uh, we have this question of who is Christ. Even if we believe in Christ, who is he? Um, is he fully God and fully man? Is he God's appointed? Uh, what does this look like? We still have these questions today. The Jehovah's Witness uh, understanding of Jesus is very different from, say, the Mormon understanding of Jesus, which is very different from the rest of us um, in understanding who Jesus is. And these heresies that start in the early church don't go away. Uh, we have this heresy of, if I can spell it right, uh, docetism, docetism, depending on who says it, that Jesus' body was absent or was just an illusion. So the, the poem that we all know, Footprints in the Sand, uh, for the docetist, there would be no footprints. You'd see Jesus, he'd be walking beside you, but he's not actually there. Um, one of the key leaders of this, um, a guy by the name of Marcion, interestingly, Marcion rejected the majority of the Old Testament and a great portion of the New. Uh, but Marcion said that Christ was so divine that he could not have been human because God lacks a material body which could not physically suffer. So if Jesus was fully God, then he only appeared to be flesh and blood and his body was just uh, a ghost or a, or a phantasm of some sort. Of course, I think all Marcion would need to do is look at Jesus' interaction with Thomas and others to see that that's not the case. But these thoughts are taking off with a lot of speed while Paul is writing this letter to the Romans. Um, in that same train of thought, others held that Jesus is a man, but that at his baptism, Christ the messianic aspect of Jesus, entered into Jesus' body in the form of the dove at the baptism and empowered him to perform the miracles, and then it leaves at the crucifixion. If you want another word for your theological toolbox, that's what's known as adoptionism. God adopted him and then left him. Um, so this is what Paul is writing against. These questions of who Christ is, these assertions, these 
really heretical assertions, that Jesus is not who he claimed that he was. Now, these people who believe these things all think that they're Christians. Uh, and when we read Paul, we don't see Paul calling them out as non-Christians. We see him calling them out as uh, following every uh, wind of, they're being blown about to and fro by every wind of doctrine, I think is the way that he puts it. Uh, so Paul's writing, yes, in order to systematize what it is that Christians ought to believe, and that's what we get in the form of, of Romans. All right. Let's flip to, and decide, do I want Galatians or do I want to stay in Romans? Let's go to Galatians. Chapter 4, verses 1 to 11. I mean that the heir, as long as he is a child, is no different from a slave, though he is the owner of everything, but he is under guardians and managers until the date set by his father. In the same way, we also, when we were children, were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are his sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son, and if a son, then an heir through God. Formerly, when you did not know God, you were enslaved to those that by nature are not gods. But now that you have come to know God, or rather to be known by God, how can you turn back again to the weak and worthless elementary principles of the world whose slaves you want to be once more? You observe days and months and seasons and years, I am afraid I may have labored over you in vain. That's Paul writing there to the church at Galatia, uh, but still throwing a little shade toward uh, the Jews there. Um, Paul writing with this idea of the Shema of Jewish orthodoxy, if we want to call it that, in the background is turning around and saying, yet you still, even though Christ has come, even though Christ has given you uh, redemption, through his son, you still want a covenant based on works, not a covenant based on faith. And what Paul has said there, because you are his son, God has spent, sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So we have this idea that the spirit is coming to those who have believed in faith. But the Jews have rejected wholesale the redemption of Christ, the redemption of God, uh, because they still want to live according to the law, according to those works. He does the same thing in 1 Corinthians chapter 8, verses 4 to 6. 1 Corinthians 8, 4 to 6. Here he's talking about the eating of pagan food. He says, Therefore, as to the eating of food offers to idol, offered to idols, rather, we know that an idol has no real existence, and there is no God but one, pulling that Jewish idea, for although there may be so-called gods in heaven or on earth, as indeed there are many gods and many lords, yet for us there is one God, the Father, from whom all things and for whom we exist, and one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom are all things and through whom we exist. So we see Paul has expanded this idea, the Lord our God is one, to now bring in Christ as that Lord. Uh, how does he do this? We come back to the Greek language. Uh, the Septuagint, that is the Old Testament translation of 
the Hebrew Bible, written in Greek. In Deuteronomy chapter 6, the word there that is translated Lord is this Greek word kurios. That same word is what Paul uses when he refers to Christ as Lord, is kurios. So we have the Lord our God is one. Now we have Jesus brought into the equation, and he's using the same language as Judaism uses for the, the one sort of God the Father, if we want to make that distinction. So now we have Yahweh. That's probably a better way to put that. We have Yahweh and we have Jesus occupying the same divine space in Paul's theology. And finally, we have this notion of the resurrection. Again, we have God in the flesh come down not as a king who is going to pull his people from exile or to overthrow the Roman kings and emperors, but we have the one God who came in the flesh and was crucified in the most humiliating way possible on a cross in the nude in front of God and everybody, literally. And then he was raised from the dead. Now his resurrection, according to even, let's say, mainstream Jewish thought, uh, Paul as a Pharisee would have gone along with this, the bodily resurrection of Christ affirmed him as the Messiah for Christ. Um, the only people who would have had a problem with that notion would have been the Sadducees. Uh, the Sadducees did not believe in anything outside of the first five books of the Old Testament, and there was no such thing as bodily resurrection for them. Um, in any case, the prevailing opinion was that bodily resurrection was something to be looked forward to, and Jesus' resurrection as firstborn of the dead affirmed him as the Messiah. In Romans chapter 1 Verse 4. I have left Romans and Galatians. Yeah. Romans chapter 1, verse 4. And was declared to be the Son of God in power according to the Spirit of holiness by what? His resurrection from the dead. That will continue. Jesus Christ our Lord, through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among all the nations, including you who are called to belong to Jesus Christ. So Jesus is, in, or rather Paul, has expanded this monotheistic idea to include Jesus by virtue of his identity with Yahweh and by virtue of his resurrection. He's saying to us that Yahweh himself is arriving in the person of Jesus at this sort of climax of the story of Israel. And one of the things that Israel had a problem with is they don't want this to be their climax. Um, when we read that salvation is to come out of Israel, Israel still wants that very public political overthrow, uh, that, that moment where they take on as, as sort of the global power and they rule and reign in that way under the, the headship of Yahweh. Um, they have a hard time thinking that this guy being crucified and bringing salvation to the Gentiles allegedly is the major point of their story, and yet that is precisely what Paul tells them 
it is. Now we'll go into Romans chapter 10 and verse 9. Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. This has nothing to do with works and has everything to do with faith. What kind of faith? Faith that confesses Jesus as Lord, Jesus as Yahweh, and also affirms that resurrection. This confession brings about salvation for the Jew who will hear it and the Greek, the Gentile, who will hear it. Because he's quoting here from the Old Testament, the same Lord is Lord of all, and all those who call on the name of the Lord should be saved. The same plan works for everybody. God doesn't have a special way for Israel and a special way for the Gentiles and that he's used Israel to get to. But actually, his divine plan is through Israel so that he might save Israel and also the Gentiles. All right, before we move on to the inclusion of the Spirit, questions? Do I need to clarify anything? So we have this idea of monotheism now expanded to include Jesus, Yahweh in the flesh, resurrected. Now we also have the question of the Spirit. So when we see the Spirit described by Paul, it's doing things that any Jewish person would expect Yahweh to do. So again, what Paul is sort of doing is he's taking this idea of the one God Yahweh and he's saying Yahweh as Jesus Yahweh as spirit now he's not saying modalism because we see Jesus and the spirit operating in the same space at the same time 1st Corinthians chapter 3 verse 16 now there we have a picture of the long-awaited return of Yahweh to the temple Though we remember from uh, Ezekiel, there he says that he saw the Spirit of the Lord depart from the temple, but then in one of those prophetic moments, he also sees the Spirit of the Lord return. And then, of course, we know that the Spirit of the Lord returns um, when Jesus enters the scene, and then, of course, they reject him. And so what Paul is doing is taking that same idea that Ezekiel and others uh, latch on to from the Old Testament and he's showing now that the indwelling of our bodies as temples is that return of uh, Yahweh to the temple um, if you want another example of that Isaiah 52 verses 6 to 8 now what else does the spirit do it enables the believer to do what is commanded in the Shema, in that Deuteronomy passage. Um, and that is forming a new exodus out of sin and death and into the family of life. The entirety of Romans chapter 8 gives us this um, idea. The new temple of the Spirit that works out this new covenant of 
love and also of forgiveness from sin and death is the fellowship of Messiah's people. So what does this mean? Uh, I'll just come over here because it's not really related to that. We have the believers in Israel and we have the believers known as the church, the Gentile believers known as the church. These are Messiah's people that are empowered by the Spirit by virtue of his Godship. In some ways, what Paul also gives us in this monotheism is also a strong affirmation of the Trinity. So for Paul, by identifying both Jesus and the Spirit as accomplishing this work of Yahweh, the one God of Israel, then Paul has rethought and redefined monotheism using Jewish language. He's used their imagery, and he's used their intent, what it is that they think Yahweh is going to do. But he does so in light of what God has done presently in the story of Israel. So if we think about, this technically comes later, but I'll go ahead and jump ship to it. Um, if we think about how Israel's story is always told, Israel begins with uh, exile, they begin with really bondage, and then they come to Exodus and they tell this story, this historical story of how it is that God has brought them out. And then they come to the present moment. What Paul is asking them to do and what he asks us to do is to reconsider the story of Israel in light of the fact that Jesus is in it and the Spirit is in it, but that plan for them has not been enacted until this present moment, this fullness of time that Paul's talking about in Galatians. So one of my favorite uh, theologians, and he's actually a, a Paul scholar into right. He's an Anglican, uh, says the kingdom has been inaugurated, the kingdom of God has been inaugurated through the work of Jesus, who as the embodiment of Israel's God and the single bearer of Israel's destiny has defeated the old enemy, which would be sin, has accomplished the new exodus and is now by his spirit leading his people to their, in in their inheritance, excuse me, not heaven, but the reclaiming and reconciliation of all creation. Questions about the Spirit's role. All right, now we get to the, the, the big gun in Paul's theology, election. We're already thinking about the election of Israel, God's chosen people. But we're also thinking about the election of Christ. The lamb slain before the foundation of the world. Now 
Now, as we talked about when we looked last week at the word proorizo and predestination, we have this idea of choosing there, but not in the sense of voting. And I think this is where many people go the wrong direction with their understanding of election. What Paul tells us, and when we, when we get into the text, what we'll see is that divine choice always comes in the case of Israel for a particular purpose. They are a specific people chosen for a specific reason, namely to bring salvation into the world through the person of Christ. For Paul, election is about vocation, it's about your purpose, it's about your job, not necessarily salvation when it comes to this question of Israel. Well, how does he do that? He once again redefines it around Jesus. Election includes salvation, because it's that act of rescuing, healing, and justifying, but it's that salvation in order that they might fulfill that particular purpose that he has for them. So we have this notion of justification. And a simple way to put that is this is, this is God as a judge in a court of law pronouncing in the right those people who are guilty. Okay, uh, This is, I think I've used this example before, but this is the whole point of the song Mercy Walked In. All right, you're literally there before the judge and mercy walks in and takes care of your case, however the words go there. Um, how are we justified? We're justified on the basis of the person and work of Christ whom we have accepted as our Lord and Savior. So when Paul brings Christ into the equation, not only in this understanding of monotheism, but now also in this doctrine of election, he's recentering the ideas around this drastic nature of Christ's death and resurrection, and he's also recentering it around this idea of the freshly given power of the Spirit. And what does all of that mean? Well, it's being fulfilled in light of what has been written in the Torah, the Prophets, and the Psalms. So what Paul sees in Christ is what Christ himself says, that I have come not to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. Uh, Christ, um, Paul takes this to that next level and says, well, yes, he does, and he does so because he is God, and he does so because he is chosen by God, and in Christ, God's people are also chosen. So we have this idea of, and I know I'm going really fast, uh, but we have this idea of Christ as the new Adam, or the second Adam. We also have Christ as the true Israel. And we get a whole lot of that in, in the Gospel of Matthew. Christ as the new Adam, Christ as the new Israel. How do we get here? Because Israel's purpose is to bear the image that was first given to Adam.
How does this happen? Adam is given a garden. Israel is given land. Adam receives commands from God. Israel also receives commands from God. Adam disobeyed. Israel disobeyed. Adam was exiled. Israel was exiled. But God comes in the person of Christ as the Messiah and the Spirit to do what Adam and Israel could not do, which is to fulfill the vocation that was given to them to bear that image of God, to bring that salvation into the world, to create a people fully and completely devoted to God. That's the point of the Abrahamic covenant. That's the point of the Adamic covenant, first of all. Then it's the point of the Abrahamic covenant and so forth. And in so doing, we must also have righteousness. Now, righteousness, of course, is given to us on behalf of, or by Christ, because of our belief. But what does it mean? Uh, regrettably for Paul, it doesn't mean just one thing. It means four things. Um, first of all, right behavior. Romans chapter 5, verse 18. Chapter 5, verse 18. Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification in life for all men. Right behavior. We have this comparison between trespass, that is sin, and one act of righteousness or right behavior. It also means legal status. So we look just one verse before that, chapter 5, verse 17. For if, because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. We have that acceptance uh, through the person and work of Jesus Christ, on, in, uh, having received his righteousness. There we go. Uh, it also means moral character. Now, moral character for Paul is actually an individual experience. Um, Romans chapter 14, verse 17. Chapter 14, verse 17. For the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. Of course, we cannot have righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit if we are not or we can't have that peace and joy if we are not ourselves righteous. And then he says, in reference to God, God's covenant faithfulness. Romans chapter 3, verse 21. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and prophets bear witness to it. Continuing into verse 22, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. So we have this manifestation of the righteousness of God given in the person of Christ who is the promised fulfillment of the covenant. Now the Greek word that we translate as righteousness for Paul really means justice. And 
try to pronounce it because Greek does weird things with vowels, but I'll write it up here for you. Uh, we have this as righteousness in almost all of our translations. It's really more about justice and God's holiness. All right, now I think probably the, well, we might get through that. We'll see. Let's think about Israel's election as the people of God. The Old Testament affirms over and over again that Israel is God's chosen nation. They are God's chosen people. He has always preserved a remnant from Israel. He has always delivered Israel. He has always provided redemption and reconciliation and salvation for Israel. And yet we get to these chapters in Paul, and we have this question of what what does God do with Israel? Where is he going with Israel? Uh, in reality, who actually is Israel? So we talked about election as election to a particular purpose. God's righteousness, his justice, is connected to the job of Israel to be the instrument by which God would save the world. Okay, so let's put that more simply. Israel's job is to provide a savior. We see this in um, the genealogies that we have of Jesus. He is uh, from the line of Jesse. He is from the line of David. He is all the things that the Old Testament prophesy, or the Old Testament prophets said would define the Messiah. So his justice or his plan is connected to this job of Israel to bring that Savior into the world. Through Israel, the one God, Yahweh, intended to bring his righteous rule to the entire world. Again, they understand this. They understand it all too literally, but they understand this. For them, they want that political uh, Messiah to come in, overthrow, and make them the leading world power. But instead, they got the promise fulfilled through the person and work of Jesus the Messiah and then the coming of the Spirit upon the body of the Messiah. That body, of course, is the church. Now, one thing we need to be very careful of when we talk about the church is that the church does not exclude Jews. Jews are included in the church, those who believe in what Christ has done. Uh, this, what we're getting into now, in all honesty, perpetuated some of the political or the religious, religio-political ideas of Nazi Germany. Um, Hitler himself was a Catholic, supposedly. Um, and there are, there was a, a devotion of religious institutions in Nazi Germany to the Nazi cause that said that this perfected race for them, those found in the church, were the Gentiles that did not include the Jews who had rejected Christ, in a sense. I'm going to take that word off of here. All right. Um, the church includes the Jews who believe. We also don't want to get into something that's still with us, um, and this is uh, with us in uh, particularly liberal theological circles, that is replacement theology. 
It does exactly what it sounds like it does. It says that the, the chosenness of Israel and the job of Israel has been taken over by the church, the, the church under Christ. No, that is not what has happened. Israel's job is still Israel's job. The church's job is still the church's job. So we're not arguing for any kind of a replacement. Jesus himself was the true Israel, and yet he doesn't replace Israel. The church doesn't replace Israel. Rather, Jesus is Israel's Messiah. He embodies Israel. He fulfills Israel's vocation by virtue of his Messiahship because this was the purpose of Israel's election in the beginning. And in fulfilling Israel's mission, Jesus then redefines what it means to be Israel. So turn over to Romans chapter 2, verses 28 to 29. Romans chapter 2, verses 28 to 29. For no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical. But a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart, by the spirit, not by the letter. His praise is not from man, but from God. So Paul brings in this notion of circumcision, uh, this Jewish law, this dedication to God of uh, children. Now we have redefined as the circumcision of the heart. Paul is going to go toe-to-toe in the book of Acts with the majority of the rest of the apostles on this issue of circumcision, particularly Peter. Uh, Peter there, I'm going to run a little bit of a rabbit. Uh, we have the council of for some reason, we translate it as Jamnia. I don't know why. The actual word is Yavna, but anyway. Uh, there at the Council of Jamnia, we have all the apostles sitting, thinking about how Jews are, or how people, not just Jews, but how people are to enter into right fellowship with uh, God through Christ Jesus. And one of the things that Peter comes up with is, well, they've got to be Jews first. So we've got to get them circumcised, and then they can have the freedom. And Paul is not very happy with him actually about this. We forget that the apostles were people and we make them so stale and so stoic and whatever, but you actually, when you read Paul, he's not very happy and he's like, no, in Christ there is, he doesn't say this there, but this is where the idea comes that we have in Galatians chapter four, in Christ there is no Jew nor Greek, male nor female. That at the point of Christ's resurrection, the entry of Christ as the Messiah, the fulfillment of the law happened, circumcision is no longer needed, the Jewish law is not needed in the sense that it was uh, to get beget redemption and righteousness because we have that on account of Christ and so all we need is faith. So he takes this doctrine of election and he refocuses him, or refocuses it around the person of the Messiah. What we have in the Messiah is the one place where the God of Abraham and the people of Abraham meet. Because Paul suggests that in the person and work of Christ, the entire purpose of Israel's election has actually found its end. To go back to what we said earlier, it is the climax of Jewish history at this point. Romans chapter 15, verses 8 to 12. 
For I tell you that Christ became a servant to the circumcised to show God's truthfulness in order to confirm promises given to the patriarchs and in order that the Gentiles might glorify God for his mercy. As it is written, therefore I will praise you among the Gentiles and sing to your name. And again it is said, rejoice, O Gentiles, with his people. And again, praise the Lord, all you Gentiles, and let all the peoples extol him. And again, Isaiah says, the root of Jesse will come, even he who arises to rule the Gentiles, in him will the Gentiles hope. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing, so that you may, by the power of the Holy Spirit, you may abound in hope. Christ comes as God's servant to confirm the promises of Israel. Why? So that the Gentiles will see God's mercy. He brings the end of the law. We'll get that from Romans chapter 10, verse 4. Bringing the ending to Israel's story. Now, we didn't say he destroys the law. We say he brings the end to the law because he fulfills it. So Jesus incorporates the defining characteristics of what it means to be the people of God and the job those people were to fulfill because we have Jesus as Israel in the flesh. I'm going to write this up here so you all can... We have him, as we've already mentioned, as the new Adam. Uh, we can see that Romans chapter 5, 12 to 21. 2 uh, Corinthians 1, 20. We see all the promises of God find their yes in him. That's the way that Paul writes it. They find their yes in him. What does that mean? That means that Jesus is the Alpha and the Omega. He's the beginning and the end and everything in between. And then Galatians 3, 15 to 16 We see Christ described as your offspring, talking of Israel, your offspring who is Christ. Not just Christ, but those who are in Christ. Now, what about Jewish law? And this is the last thing we'll mention this morning. Uh, Galatians chapter 3, verses 24 to 29. Would help if I went the right direction. Galatians chapter 3, verses 24 to 29. There it is. So then the law was our guardian until Christ came in order that we might be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. What does that mean? The law. For in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. So the law has found its end because Jesus has entered the scene and with his entry we have now a call to faith rather than a call to uh, works or a call to preservation of the law, which of course was impossible anyway. Thank you so much for joining us this evening. If you enjoyed our study, please be sure to like us on Facebook at Methedes KBC or our church page at Kokomo Baptist Church. 